earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today on A Word from the Word. Today is part 10, the conclusion of our series, Scrutinizing Scripture. Can we believe our Bible? In part 9, the Bible maze, KJV, NIV, or NLT, we took our cue from a 1940 book by author and philosopher Mortimer Adler, revised in 1972, and became a classic. We excerpted a 1980s ad in the New York Times for this book, titled How to Read a Love Letter. A few lines from that ad are sufficient to summarize the last program. In reading that love letter, a young man ponders over the exact shades of meaning of every word, every comma. He asks, what is the exact significance of those words? He could quote the letter by heart. In fact, he will to himself for weeks to come. I posed a few questions, friends. Might we read our Bibles like that young man did the love letter? Do we ponder over the exact shades of meaning of every word, every comma? Do we from time to time ask ourselves, what is the exact significance of the words I'm reading? Do we quote them by heart to ourselves for weeks to come? I'm curious if we've ever consciously thought of our Bibles as a love letter from God. Maybe if we did, we'd look at it in a whole new or different light. Maybe we'd read it in a whole different way, actually expecting to hear from the author who loves us with an everlasting and enduring love, per Psalm 136. We also elaborated on the translation history of our English Bible, a fascinating journey that at times had its rocky moments, and we saw that we're actually very fortunate to have so many English translations of the Word of God and have translations now tailored to various reading comprehension levels from children to adults. On this journey, we keep seeing how the Bible continues to astound us. And today, friends, will be no different. I've titled Part 10, Our Conclusion, The Bible. Don't leave home without it. And we'll see that our overarching goal for reading and studying the Bible is three-pronged. First, to know him, the author, being God or Christ. Second, to hear his voice. And third, to do his will. This naturally means we must come to see the importance of spending sufficient time with something of great value and beauty, as is our Bible. 
This idea was epitomized many years ago when National Geographic magazine gave a cameo appearance to and wrote briefly about Carl Sharsmith, an 81-year-old guide at Yosemite National Park, and observed him in action one day. Here's what Nat Geo published. Carl was back at his tent quarters after a long day with tourists. His nose was flaked white and red with sunburn. His eyes were watery, partly from age, but also from hearing again an old question after half a century of summers in California's Yosemite National Park. A lady tourist had hit him with a question where it hurt. I've only got an hour to spend at Yosemite. What should I do? Where should I go? The old naturalist interpreter ranger finally found voice to reply, Ah, lady, only an hour. Only an hour? Only an hour? I suppose that if I had only an hour to spend at Yosemite, I'd just walk over there by the river and sit down and cry. Well, this got me thinking, friends. Suppose old Carl's 50 years of experience had been as a Bible teacher. What if that same lady came up to him and hit him with a question where it hurt? I've only got an hour to spend in the Bible. What should I do? Where should I read? I can just imagine Carl's reply. Ah, lady, only an hour. Only an hour? Only an hour? I suppose that if I had only an hour to spend in the Bible, I'd just go over to that chair and sit down and cry. Friends, a whole lifetime doesn't even seem long enough to fully appreciate the great value and beauty of the Bible. Reading and studying the Bible is vital for every one of us who named the name of Christ. How can we learn about God or grow spiritually if we don't see the importance of investing our time reading and studying the book of books, as I call it? Because, friends, it's in this unique book, this unique collection of books, this unique one-volume library of books we now call the Bible, that God has made himself known to us. Martin Luther said he studied the Bible the way he gathers apples. First, he shakes the whole tree so that the ripest ones might fall. And second, he climbs the tree and shakes each limb. After he's shaken each limb, he shakes each branch, then every twig. Finally, he looks under each leaf. Skip Heitzig, Calvary Chapel pastor and author of the book, How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It, encourages us to consider this very method when reading and studying our Bibles. In his book, he says, Let's search the Bible as a whole, shaking the tree by reading as rapidly as we would any other book, then shaking every limb, studying book after book, we should then shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters when they don't break the meaning, and then shake every twig by carefully studying the paragraphs and sentences. You'll be rewarded if you look under every leaf by searching for the meaning of the words. 
Friends, a favorite Christian author I've read and quoted is the late A.W. Tozer, who said, We find the Bible difficult because we try to read it as we would read any other book, and it's not the same as any other book. Now, while the Bible is one continuous story of God's plan of redemption, it's not arranged chronologically from beginning to end, and it's not always obvious how each section or division ties in with the overall theme of redemption. On top of that, we have to be conscious of the fact that this book we now call the Bible was over 1,500 years in the making. God's revelation to humankind occurred progressively over time, and he enlisted the cooperation of over 40 different authors that he breathed on. The result was this unquestionably unique collection of writings we should view as a library, but not just any library, because in this library, all the books are interconnected. There's a scarlet thread of redemption woven into each book, a thread that's obvious in some books and not so obvious in others. Friends, what sometimes makes the Bible difficult to read and understand for some of us is that not only is there this scarlet thread of redemption interwoven through its pages, but there are other threads as well, themes and sub-themes, plots and subplots, so to speak, that present us with only parts of the redemption puzzle. And the seeds for these themes and plots are often planted in the Old Testament. They are then nurtured along the way as the Old Testament unfolds and often don't come to full bloom until the New Testament. But even there, friends, they're watered and grow to maturity over a span of time and may be addressed in several books. That's why it's so dangerous to isolate single verses. We run the risk of making them say something they never intended to say. Perhaps you've heard the cliché, a text taken out of context is a pretext. Friends, every one of us who presume to speak for God must rightly divide his word and always be ready to make a reasoned defense to anyone who asks us. King Solomon counsels us in Proverbs 22, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, to make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may correctly answer to him who sent you? The Apostle Peter even counsels us in 1 Peter 3.15, Set apart Christ as master in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Well, one of the key texts for today, friends, is 2 Timothy 2.15, Diligently hasten with zeal to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, 
Various English translations make a valiant effort to communicate this last phrase with accurately handle, rightly divide, and correctly explain. These are noble attempts to translate a word that literally means to cut in a straight line. In the Greco-Roman society of New Testament times, this word was used by both farmers and construction workers to either cut a straight furrow in a field or lay out a straight road. And friends, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this expression was imported into the scriptures as a metaphor to refer to a minister who is now a workman who makes straight paths for the feet of his people to tread or walk down. In addition, this spiritual adaptation adds that a minister of the gospel is to present the truth rightly and not handle it as charlatans do, people who pretend to have expert knowledge but whose words only bring confusion and strife. This is actually hinted at in 2 Timothy 2.14, the verse before this verse, that points out the ruin done to others by quarreling about words. And again in 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, which say, Some have departed from these goals and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. A minister of the gospel, then, or any spokesperson for God, must treat the word of God honestly and fully, interpreting it in a straightforward manner. Here the cults and aberrant Christian groups fail miserably. Now let's take a moment and unpack Second Timothy 2.15, which begins with, Do your best in the NIV. This is okay, but not really the most expressive way to communicate the original. The beloved KJV says, study, but unfortunately 17th century English is misleading here too. The NASB and the New King James Version have be diligent, but even this falls short of the fuller meaning behind this term. While investigating this, I've concluded that it's not the work itself that is being emphasized here, but the motivation and drive behind the work. A distinction I believe that's important, because at the heart of this verb is the idea of being zealous, being eager, taking pains, and making a concerted effort. This is picked up in part by the NIV by suggesting do your best. The term also includes earnestness and diligence, which is picked up in part by the NASB. You see, friends, I believe all these ideas are at the heart of this text, and therefore it spawns a convicting question. Just how strong is my motivation and drive to dig into the Word of God, know it well, so I can make straight paths for the feet of people to tread who are in my spheres of influence, my circles of relationships, so I can hold a straight course in the Word of Truth and not detour down devious and crooked paths, going recklessly down side roads, but rather offer a sane and sensible interpretation of the scriptures. Friends, I honestly think many of us don't see God's word as an essential part of our Christian wardrobe, as I call it. For example, when you got dressed this morning, did you remember to put on God's word as part of your outfit, like your shirt, pants, dress, or your shoes? 
Evidently, first century Christ followers viewed the word of God as required attire. They didn't take on the day's battles with the world and the devil without it. I like to say they didn't leave home without it. Friends, this is clearly brought out in Ephesians 6. You know this portion, I'm sure. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, in some English Bibles, has a heading called The Armor of God. My nickname for this section is The Warfare Wardrobe. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, in prison, is staring at a Roman soldier in full regalia, so to speak. And from head to toe, literally, Paul's attention is drawn to the Roman soldier's wardrobe, which contains the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth around the waist, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God and the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, which, by the way, is a reference to spiritual reconciliation. Now, most preachers and teachers stop at verse 17, but I propose that we include verse 18 as part of the warfare wardrobe. This is prayer. Verse 18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. So, friends, notice how Paul carefully elaborates on the full outfit or complete outfit. We're not to go anywhere with just some parts of the outfit, the wardrobe. In fact, the phrase put on means to put on like clothing. Why? There's two so that's in this portion, which tell us why. Verse 11 says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13 says, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. These two reasons, friends, certainly seem serious enough so that we don't leave home without it. The Bible, that is. And why is this necessary? Well, verse 11 mentions the devil's schemes, a vivid and all-encompassing word carrying meanings like methods, well-crafted trickery, organized evil, lying in wait. The Greek word is methodia, which means the devil is methodical and capable of crafting deceitful schemes. And it's interesting that the only reference to the word of God in this spiritual warfare passage is verse 17. Remember it? Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly, Hebrews 4.12 also connects the word of God to a sword. And this reference is to the effect of God's word. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, friends, I believe in Ephesians 6, we have the sword, the word of God, mentioned as an offensive weapon in the warfare wardrobe to do battle against the external forces of evil marshaled by the devil and his spiritual forces of evil. And then we have in Hebrews 4, the sword, the word of God, mentioned as a tool of God to purify the internal forces of our fallen nature that often war against us. This is the dual action of the word of God. 
Notice, friends, in the Ephesians passage, the sword is the only offensive weapon in the warfare wardrobe. Every other part of the armor serves defensive purposes. Can you see now why I expressed a concern earlier that we don't see God's word as an essential part of our Christian warfare wardrobe? How many of us realize that this Bible is our only offensive weapon? How many of us leave our house each day and forget to include it as part of our outfit? And friends, please don't misunderstand me to be saying that we have to physically carry our Bibles around. No, after all, the psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Paul said in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's an anonymous quote. What makes the difference is not how many times you've been through the Bible, but how many times and how thoroughly the Bible has been through you. Dr. Howard A. Kelly, former professor of gynecology at John Hopkins University, who is also an avid Bible student, advised the very best way to study the Bible is simply to read it daily with close attention and with prayer to see the light that shines from its pages, to meditate upon it and continue to read it until somehow it works itself, its words and its presentation of God and his Christ into the very warp and woof of one's being. Now, warp and woof are weaving terms. The lengthwise threads are the warp and the crosswise threads are the woof. The point is that we're to weave the Bible's ways into the very fabric of our being. In other words, friends, the Bible's very own thought patterns are to be interwoven into our character so we think its thoughts and live out its principles naturally every day. And here's a great place to reinforce what I've shared in the beginning. Our goal for reading and studying the Bible, this threefold goal, is first to know him, the author being God or Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Second, to hear his voice. In John 10.27, Jesus said, My sheep hear or listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And third, to do his will. In Colossians 1, 9 through 12, Paul prays a great prayer for the Colossian Christians. Read the full prayer sometime. I'm just going to highlight verses 9 and 10. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Friends, reading and studying the Bible should not be viewed as mere duty or an end in itself, but rather as a means to an end, that of knowing God, hearing his voice, and doing his will here on earth. I can't think of a better motivation and drive for digging into God's word, the Bible, and knowing it well. Can you? 
Well, friends, in closing, listen to these brief excerpts from Psalm 119, beginning at verse 89. Forever, O Eternal One, your word stands in heaven, firm and resolute. I will never forget your precepts, for through them you have given me life. I belong to you, Lord. Save me, because I have taken care to live by your principles. I've seen the limit of all perfection, but your commandments are all-encompassing. Oh, how I love your law. I fix my mind on it all day long. I have more discernment than all my teachers because I study and meditate on your testimonies. I comprehend more than those who are my elders because I have kept your precepts. I have kept my feet from walking the paths of evil so that I may live according to your word. Your word is a lamp for my steps. It lights the path before me. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on the programs in this series. One listener wrote in and said, Another great message. Thanks for exposing the word with such enthusiasm and love. Another listener shared, Are we seeking the truth? Are we blinded by what the world says is truth? Are we a disciple committed to learning the truth and observing God's word and then interpreting it properly? Thanks for your series. Well, thanks, friends, for your encouraging words. And if a word from the Word has blessed you, please consider becoming a support team member. Just ask for the details. Listeners like you help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.